0: Welcome, everybody, to Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus with David Silver, and we have a very special guest today that uh, we are super happy. He's a, agreed to hang out with us, has a wonderful book that we're going to talk talk about. Thutin Jinpa is his name, and many of you will be familiar with him if you have ever seen His Holiness the Dalai Lama in any live event. And uh, he has been the... Main trans uh, translator for His Holiness for thirty years, is it, Jinpa? Yes, this point? It's
1: uh, going to be thirty years this October. Yeah.
0: Wow, and and I, as I said before, before we got on, I have been seeing His Holiness in events and uh, must be twenty to twenty five years, and so, <laughs> so I said to Jinpa earlier, this is, I feel like I know you. You're like a friend, and. <laughs> Just from all these years and years and years, so it's yes. uh, it's just wonderful to have you here. And well,
1: thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a real honor to be serving His Holiness for all these years. Uh, yeah.
0: Um
1: in in his in my capacity as his interpreter, yeah, it's been a it's been a true honor.
2: Wonderful, and, uh, and a true gift to us, because otherwise we would just be getting the vibe. <laughs> we, would, we wouldn't get the specifics. So thank it's you. True. And uh, just
0: to mention to everybody, and of course we're going to be talking about uh, the book, it's called A Fearless Heart, how, how the Courage to be Compassionate Can Transform Our Lives. And uh, it's a, a, the, the subtitle here, Jinpa, uh, just to relate, uh, we, we spend uh, a lot of time, both David and I, working with Ram Dass, and I'm, I think you know who that is, and uh, we just finished a retreat cultivating the courage to love so i think that and we want to kind of talk about that which you do talk about in the book the the, uh, connection between compassion and loving kindness and so on but can we start this all out with you just telling because many people would want to know and of course they can uh get some of this in the book but just uh tell us about your early life and uh, how you grew up and and, and just the, the course of, of your history and, and then meeting His Holiness sure. and so on.
1: Thank you very much. I mean, I grew up um, in India. Um, my parents <clears throat> left Tibet in the wake of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's ex- you know, escape to India uh, to start an exile life. And around 80,000 Tibetans followed him. My parents were part of that large group and uh, i was barely a year when my parents left so i don't have any childhood memory of tibet but i do have memory of uh, my early childhood in northern india and um, like many tibetan children of my age um, we were basically put into boarding schools while the parents um, had to work uh, do a lot of manual work particularly uh, road construction work because uh, that was the only thing that they could do so my so um, I grew up in India, but um, as I got older, I really began to notice that um, the other people's compassion have played a seminal role in supporting us. Um, the school I went to, the first children's village, was funded by a Save the Children's Fund, which is essentially a charity supported by thousands of ordinary British citizens, you know, uh, making contribution on a regular basis. And then I remember um, as a teenager uh, in my monastery growing up in South India, you know, where the monastery relocated and where we had to work on farms and, um, you know, building roads and stuff. um, Many of the sacks that contained grain that were part of the aid program had labels marked Catholic Relief Service uh, or aid from the American people. So in, there was this, you know, growing up, um, the, the, the effect of other people's compassion was very real in my life. Um, um, as, as, you know, a typical refugee child growing up in, in, in a community like in India. And, um, and on top of that, one thing, fortunate thing is that the, in the traditional Tibetan society and culture, Compassion is very, very present in everyday life. and uh, The most important uh, presence in our life is that, you know, figure of the Dalai Lama. And His Holiness represents the Buddha of Compassion for the Tibetan people. So, And also the mantra, the daily mantra that the Tibetans chant while they, you know, um, count the beats or, you know, turn the prayer wheel is Omani Padme Hum, which is essentially a mantra of Buddha of Compassion. So... As a spiritual value, there is a, a sort of a tremendous admiration and exhortation of compassion as part of our everyday spiritual consciousness. So that is an advantage of my own kind of cultural heritage. And, uh, and then when I did have the final opportunity, finally an opportunity to serve His holiness which was more of a coincidence, actually, because uh, I was in Dharamsala, and the official translator that they have scheduled to, um, you know, translate for that particular series, uh, he was not able to arrive on the first day, so they were looking for someone to stand in for him before he arrives. Word got around that there is this young monk who has a reasonably good command of English, and then one thing led to another. And it was rare to have Tibetan monks who have a classical monastic education, but also facility with English. So I just happened to be one of those um, unusual ones. Mm. And then one thing led to another. I was asked to stand in. And then uh, a few days later, His Holiness, the secretary, told me that His Holiness wanted to see me. So as I walked into the audience room, I, you know, as as it is custom for Tibetans, I prostrated and you know offered my scarf. And he looked at me and said. I know you, you're a good debater, you're a good scholar in South India. And he said, how come I did not know you spoke English? So he was a little surprised. And then he said that um, people tell me that you have an easy English to listen to, so would you be willing to make yourself available, you know, if I need you to travel with me? Of course, for a Tibetan, you know, and growing up in India as a refugee child, a student in the monastery, you know, for whom His Holiness is this revered presence um, you know, I just broke down in tears, and I said, "Never, even in my dream, I ever thought I'll have a, something like this as as an honor." Um, so that was in
0: 1985. And I and I remember reading in the book, which I thought was so beautiful, was when you were a small child yes. in in the uh, was it the school or camp? With it, was children-
1: school, yeah, Tibetan, uh, it was the school, yeah, Tibetan. It was the Sterling Castle Home for Tibetan Children, yes.
0: And, in Shimla, and he came one day. Just describe that. It's just so yes, lovely. I
1: remember that. That was probably one of the earliest childhood memory I have, which is very vivid. Um, this was a school in Shimla, which is in northern India, um, which used to be during the British time, the summer capital, and the school was situated, located in a really beautiful small hill, and um, uh, everybody was getting really excited. Everything was. Being cleaned up, and then we knew it was His Holiness's visit, and uh, so that that morning, many Indian police officers came, and I, you know, I told the story that I remember playing marbles with uh, some of them while we were waiting, and then when His Holiness arrived, um, you know, we were lining up on the two sides of the road, you know, roadway, driveway, and uh, you know, on the on the road there were all these beautiful Tibetan, you know, religious. Patterns painted on the ground with limes, you know lime um, and you know there were uh incense burning, and we were singing you know we were we had been practicing this, so I remember this very, very vividly and um so part of that visit um you know uh, it turns out that few of us have been selected to you know walk with these holidays and hold his hand and I happen to be one of them, mm. and looking back, I must have been pretty precocious so <laughs> I, um, you know, later, uh, some of the um, foster parents, the house parents were working there looking after us. Um, They told me that I asked the question, you know, when can I become a monk? (laughs) (laughs) And then his Holiness has has said, you know, if you study well, you can become a monk anytime. So I remember that visit really vividly. It was just so beautiful.
0: Mm. And then you became a monk and for many years and, and really uh, studied the scriptures and became um, very, very um, uh, one with, at one with them. And, and then English came into the picture, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, more, um, more learning and more, your desire to be more fluent.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, so when the time, you know, my first opportunity to become a monk uh, came when I was around eleven. So um, I decided to make, you know, join the monastery. My father was actually at that time, he he was himself a monk, but he was really against it because he thought I was wasting my opportunity to finish school and become a bread earner for the family because I have two younger siblings. But I didn't want to hear anything about it. I just wanted to be a monk uh, because, you know, in my childhood growing up in Tibetan schools, um, among the teachers... Um, The monk teachers who were there were the ones that really impressed me. They were kind. Even physically, they looked radiant. Um, So the monastery, um, you know, I mean, when I first joined this monastery, it was a small monastery, and it was based in Dharamsala. And one, looking back, one advantage of that monastery at that time being located in Dharamsala was I had access to, number of hippies who were hanging around uh, in Dharamsala. (laughs) That was at the height of the hippie movement, 1971-72. Yes. 1970-72. So uh, then um, I, you know, took the opportunity to, you know, practice my English because, you know, my English was very, very basic. And that was, looking back, really, really helpful. And then I also remember, um, you know, being very inspired by the presence of some of the senior meditators who are living in caves uh, in, in, in the hills of Dharamsala. In fact, um, one of my very fond memories is uh, helping one of those monks build his meditation kind of, you know, hut. Um, and it's made from slates. Um, and you know, I joined the, the, the group that helped him build that and you know I mean of course I was just a kid I was about 12 and um, so my main job like we were three of us three or two other kids we were getting the water and getting the firewood to make food for the people who are actually doing the building <laughs> mm-hmm. so then the monastery eventually moved down to South India as part of a Tibetan resettlement project uh, to an agricultural uh, settlement and then um the real hard work began because we had to work um we had to dig the trenches on the two sides of the road and uh, plant those big shade trees and then we also work in the fields so until 1978 um i did that in south india Mm. then finally i had the opportunity to when i was uh, around 20 then i went to um Ganden uh, Monastery, which is an academic monastery, so then my formal academic monastic kind of training in Buddhist philosophy um, began after in this bigger monastery. Mm. And
0: jump forward to when uh, uh, so at this point uh, there's a certain point here. I guess it's nineteen mid eighties when when you became the official uh, yes eighty five yeah translator for His Holiness yes. Yes, and you were yes. still a monk then?
1: Yes, I was a monk and uh, my English was because in South India, I had no opportunity to practice English. So as my Engli- as I improved my English, my English was increasingly becoming more and more book English. So I remember in 85, when I first began interpreting for His Holiness, um, my, uh, I remember actually, um, once um, I was invited by some of the Western students for lunch, um, And uh, so we sat down and then at one point I got up and I said, now I must take my leave. (laughs) Everybody laughed. (laughs) And I said, what did I say? (laughs) You know, I didn't realize actually people don't speak like that anymore.
2: Right, That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I I wanted to um, move very forward actually to to the book. And, uh, you know, a lot of books have come out in the last uh, few years about compassion and about basic Buddhist tenets. Yes. And what, what amazed me when I read the book was that, you know, one tends to think, okay, compassion is kindness, you sure. know, and so big deal, you just be compassionate. Do we need books? Do we need teaching? Yes. After I read the book, I realized that to be compassionate in the deepest sense is a very rigorous training, and that, you know, to be so arrogant as I was for a flicker of a second before I read it, I think, yes. I know what it's like to be kind, you know. But when i read the book i saw the amount the intricate you know uh, journey pathway yes, yes. to cultivating compassion and you actually started uh something of cct which is compassion cultivation training which to me was an amazing wonderful addition to the american to american spiritual culture yes, and yes. also you brought you brought the expression in the book of Compassion becoming the basic stance. Yes, yes. That really resonated with me for quite a while in my apartment here, because I realized that that is at the root of what we seem to need as a planet, never mind as individuals. Yes. Yes. So I would like you to elaborate on that, on, on the cultivating of compassion as a basic stance.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, one of the points i was trying to make is that um you're right compassion is something that most of us feel that we know um about it and also we often take it for granted um but also uh, we have to admit that we as human beings as societies we have been fascinated and intrigued by compassion for a very long time you know if you look at all the major world religious traditions Um, most traditions have something to say about compassion. Most traditions put compassion at the center of their ethical teaching. Um, And uh, so, but on the other hand, um, in our own personal life, um, we tend to leave compassion more at the level of response, something that happens to us, something that is triggered. And it, it, it becomes like any other responses that we are capable of. You know, anger. When we are provoked, we get angry. And, you know, when we are confronted with the pain, we, get, we feel compassionate. So we most of us tend to leave it at that. But the point I was trying to make is that compassion is, in fact, one of the most important instincts that is part of our natural makeup. So um, and and that is rooted in, from an evolutionary point of view, the nurturing, caring part of our you know our nature, and that has got to be so powerful and important in defining who we are and shaping who we are, and although it does happen naturally, but as we start you know it's, it's, uh, human beings are very complicated creatures we have. We are one of the few, you know, creatures that have very, you know, um, high-level self-awareness, and we tend to tell stories about ourselves. And unfortunately, in the modern, secular, scientific-based story of who we are, we have kind of left compassion out. So I was trying to, in this book, I was trying to make many of these trends put together, Compassion's place in our fundamental nature, compassion's place in our self definition of who we are, and then also compassion as part of our basic motivation system. Because when we are confronted with any situation, we have a choice. We can respond to that situation out of fear or out of anger, out of blame, out of judgment, but we also have. Uh, an opportunity to respond out of, um, you know, out of compassion. So compassion is, in that sense, an important part of our motivation system. So the point about cultivating is not so much we have to learn to be compassionate because, you know, we don't have to learn compassion from religion or from school because it's there. But where training is important is to really make compassion more conscious part of our Attention, and also make it part of our intention, so that it shapes our motivation system, and also, ideally, to make it our base default standpoint. So this is what I mean by as a basic stance. So that, f- for example, if you look at someone like His Holiness, his default position is compassion. So whatever happens in his life, his first response is g- going to come from that standpoint and then if the situation calls for something else like a kind of a tougher approach then that will come later but so that and so this we can learn through cultivation through training so that we and it's it's like a kind of a habituation you know through habituation we learn to be in a particular way so those are the things that i was trying to you know uh, make uh, you know kind of make clear in the compassion cultivation training
0: mm. I love, uh, there's one thing you say in the book. You talk about how compassion is translated in Semitic languages uh, and related to the word womb. Yes. I'm so fascinated by that because, uh, so mother's love is the expression of of our compassion. And I don't, I mean, many times over the decades of, of, of hearing His Holiness, so many times how He has talked about the most important thing is Mother's love.
1: Exactly, yeah. I mean, even in the Buddhist scriptures, um, the unconditional nature of genuine compassion is often compared to a mother's unconditional love for uh, for a newborn child, you know, sort of there. And there she is completely for the child, fully present, ready to do everything, and without any kind of self-agenda on her part. So, and that unconditionality, uh, of her love it, uh, is really sometimes used as a kind of a, a archetype um, in the Buddhist scriptures as well. So I was actually quite uh, intrigued when I read about how the, the Semitic word for compassion has this, you hmm. know, um, etymological connection with a womb.
0: Yeah. No. Amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the connection of unconditional love or loving kindness uh, with compassion and and the ultimate. Uh, um, complete uh, connectivity, they, they can't be one without the other. Yes. Elaborate yes, maybe a little on yes.
1: that. I mean, I, um, I, I tend to understand the relationship between loving kindness and compassion as, in fact, you know, two expressions of the same impulse or two expressions of the same quality of mind, which is the basic impulse for caring. Um, and sense of concern. And the difference is when we are talking about compassion, the focus is more on suffering. It's, a, you know, wishing to see the relief of a suffering. And it's triggered by a perception of the need. Um, whereas when we are talking about loving kindness, then the focus is more on wishing well, wishing happiness, uh, wishing success. Mm-hmm. So And it's less triggered by a sight of suffering or pain. But the that the impulse from which both of them are coming is really the same. So in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, when we, um, you know, I mean, loving kindness and compassion are really seen as two sides of the same coin. So when you have genuine loving kindness, you have genuine compassion. When you have genuine compassion, then you have genuine loving com- uh, kindness. The only difference is what tends, one tends to focus more on the happiness wishing happiness and wishing well, one tends to focus more on the suffering, wishing the relief of the situation, wanted to do something about it. So they are really the same thing, expressed in different ways.
2: Mm. Mm. You know, one of the things in the book, a part of the book which completely compelled me, was when you were talking about different grades of compassion, the dynamic. You, you, you differentiate between the sort of easier compassion, which is near friends, near family. Sure. And then... Gradually, in the book, you teach us how to get to the much more difficult compassion. And the epic example you give is the day of, of Mao Zedong's death. Yes. And when, you know, here is the man who's the leader of what was one of the most oppressive invasions of all time. And, and yes, I yes. think one can use the word genocide without being inaccurate. And yet, you, in the book, describe how compassion fits, fitted in there and destroyed... A reactive, responsive hatred, or or joy, or joy at the death of the great of of the great oppressor, and that to me really puts things in a crystal clear perspective, or it did for me. And I'd like you to just elaborate a little bit on that.
1: Yes. um, So um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, and also mentioned earlier, um, compassion is a very natural impulse that we have. And it's a, uh, it's a natural sense of concern that arises in us in the face of a pain or a need or a suffering uh, and accompanied with um, the wish to see the relief of that situation or, or wanting to do something about it. And of course, it's easier to feel this to someone who, whom you care, um, because you have this, you know, in order to generate compassion, you need to be able to identify with that other. You need to be able to make the connection. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we are able to feel compassion and love for our loved ones because we have, we're identifying with them. And also um, in, in the case of total strangers, um, when someone has been, say, for example, hit by a car in front of us and it's bleeding and screaming, um, at that moment, most of us are capable of experiencing compassion instantaneously. Um, and that's because acute suffering is a, such a powerful connector. You know, we're able to identify, we are able to cut through all the categories that we generally construct to individuate us from others. But the acute pain and suffering is such a powerful connector because it's such a powerful indicator of our basic sentient nature. So when we're confronted with a sight like that, even a total stranger who has no connection with us, we're able to feel it. Um, so, But otherwise, it's more difficult to extend to someone that you don't know. And, and that's why in the Buddhist tradition, um, as you expand the circle of concern through your compassion meditation, one of the main emphases is really placed on, in the Stanford program, we call it Cultivating um, um, com, uh, Appreciation of Common Humanity. So the idea that just like me, this person do not want to suffer. Just like me, this person wishes to be happy. So trying to cultivate not just an intellectual kind of assent to that proposition, but ideally a kind of a gut level mm-hmm. appreciation of the basic humanity of the other. And this is where much of the effort goes in. Because once you're able to make that connection, then it's easier to generate compassion. So, and, and then, of course, it's harder compared to the loved ones, to a stranger. It's harder to a difficult person. And it's even more harder to summon a despotic ruler like Mao Zedong, who had done so much damage uh, to the whole population of Tibet and many, many, many millions of Chinese as well. And he was a horrible man um so of course in in someone like in the like mao zedong the, the challenges of being able to generate compassion is even harder because you have to allow ourselves to see the basic humanity of even someone like mao um so and that's where the cultivation and the practice really comes in
0: yeah mm. um further into the book um there's different ways in which compassion can help us, yes. the cultivation of it in different parts of our lives and with different emotions and so on. And one of them is loneliness, and that yes. is, of course, a scourge here in, in the yes. in the West. Yes. Um, so many people are isolated because of breakdown of family, especially sure. when they get older and so on. Um, but just to highlight, there's a wonderful story you tell in the book about His Holiness encountering uh, somebody who was quite disturbed and and what he did. Please tell that story.
1: Yes, this was in 1989, actually. It was a very, very momentous visit, because that was also the um, visit when uh, the Nobel Peace Prize um, awarding to His Holiness was announced. Um, And uh, at that time, there was a conference, um, probably one of the first ones on Buddhism and psychotherapy, it's just, this was in Newport Beach. And his holiness was staying at a private residence. So when he one day when he was returning outside the residence, there was a few number of people, you know, well-wishers. And uh, there was one person who kept shouting, Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama. So then his holiness walked over to him. You know, at, in those days, we had very small security uh, with him. And uh, he walked over to the person. And then the person is, you can see him, that he's visibly kind of disturbed. And uh, he said, can I talk to you? And then His Holiness listened to him. And then the person uh, shared with His Holiness his suicidal thoughts, that he can't see the point of living, and there's so much pain in his life, and um, you know he doesn't know when he will do it, but he can't go on living like this. And and His Holiness talked to him for at, at some length, talked about the fact that he's a human being, mm-hmm. the fact that he can recognize his own suffering, that he is suffering is a good thing, and also uh, talked about how, you know, there might be people who, for whom, you know, he is an object of love, uh, as and there will be, you know, there will be a sense of concern, and also um, what good he can do uh, by simply being present and you know caring for the loved ones. So Solinus, you know, gave all those arguments and. Um, you know, mm. he basically kept shaking his head and, it, you know, it, it, this doesn't work for me, this doesn't work for me, you know. And and then finally, his illness stopped talking and just gave him a huge hug. Mm. He gave him a bear hug and the person just broke down and sobs and and completely calmed down. I mean, that was just... <laughs> because sometimes the trans, non-verbal transmissions are much more powerful. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and... and This is where the power of compassion comes from, because in the end the active ingredient of compassion is the sense of connection with someone. And this is one of the reasons why I say that taking care of your own compassionate impulse and kind of, you know, embracing it and living your life from this is the best buffer against the problem of loneliness, because loneliness arises when you're feeling alone and unconnected with others and you begin to feel a sense of alienation from others and then eventually from yourself you know you begin to feel that somehow you have a sense of who you are looked at from outside so it's like loneliness has this very strange qualitative experience um, which has this you know at the heart of which there's a sense of being out of sync you know so you you feel you don't belong anywhere and you don't feel connected And compassion is a powerful, you know, quality that will, you know, at the heart of which is a sense of connection. Even in the case of feeling compassionate towards yourself, there is a relationship with yourself. So the compassion is a thoroughly relational quality which is rooted in a feeling of connection. Mm. And and that is why it's so powerful. Uh, And, you know, when it becomes active, in our life. And that's one of the things I try to say in my book, you know, particularly in contemporary West, um, because we have a very conflicted attitude to qualities like compassion. Because on the one hand, there's a spiritual heritage of Christianity that extols the virtue of compassion and altruism and self-sacrifice and selfless, acts, and so on. But on the other hand, the popular discourse in the secular kind of domain is very much driven by evolutionary theory interpreted in a particular way, where we say that ultimately we are only driven by pursuit of self-interest. So there is this very conflicted kind of attitude to compassion. So, and then we also feel somehow, you know, compassion is more like a moral value, or maybe even religious value. So it's, we put it as part of a, something that you ought to do, like a duty, but we forget that it's actually part of our basic nature. Mm. It's part of our makeup. And in fact, you know, taking that part of our makeup more seriously and living our life from that uh, place is good for us. We are the ones who stand again. His holiness often says that people generally think that compassion is good for others, but not necessarily good for oneself. But he says that the truth is the first beneficiary of your experience of compassion is yourself. Mm. Because whether or not the compassion sure. actually makes material difference to someone's life depends on many other factors. But when you feel compassion and act out of it, you have actually experienced, you know, the, the, the fruits of compassion right there.
2: In, in the book, um, you, you talk a lot about self-compassion. Yes. And, and I would like you to elucidate, as you do in the book, the difference between that and self-cherishing. What is the essential difference between those two things?
1: Yes, the the big difference is when you have genuine self-compassion, there is a room for others in that place. So, uh, and also self-compassion allows us to see our situation in the context of other, you know, other fellow human beings. Um, And it's also a kind of a more magnanimous state where you, you see yourself as one among many. Um, So the, the link with others is not broken. Whereas when you experience self-absorption or self-cherishing, then it's a very narrow vision where basically you don't leave any space for others and you're fixated on your own narrow self-concerns. So it feels very different because in in self-cherishing and in self-centeredness, there is no sense of connection with others. Uh, it's really kind of the focus is very much you know uh, oneself, and self pity is also a form of you know excessive self centeredness because there then you are thinking about just me, why me, and all all of that stuff. Whereas when you feel genuine self compassion, what you're doing is you are bringing the kind of part of yourself that allows you to be tender and kind and understanding and non judgmental to your own situation. Um, so, so it's a very, I mean, even experientially, the two things will feel very different. I mean, they may kind of, in in, in, in the language, it may sound similar, um, but in actual experience, the two things will feel very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you
2: for that. Yeah, it's very clear. Raghu. Um, I There's
0: one part where you talk about empathy as motivation. And uh, that's the first impulse to get, yes. to get beyond uh, self-interest. And uh, you even say compassion is what makes it possible for our empath- empathic reaction to manifest in kindness. And I think for, for people that are listening to this podcast, and we have, by the way, we didn't talk about this, Jinpa, but, but many, many uh, of, of the audience in our community at MindPod Network are uh, millennial generation. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and their interest is not so much in isms from yes. Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. They take whatever they can get uh, as a practical way to be able to balance their lives on a day to day basis and, and be of some uh, you know, better human, sure. be of some use to, sure. to the world around sure. them. And I think that this particular thing around empathy is one uh, striking example of a practical, because everybody can relate with that. It's true. Talk about true. that a little bit.
1: Yes. Um, I, I mean, it, uh, Fortunately, now, there is uh, quite a lot of scientific uh, studies um, that have come out which have looked at empathy and its key role in um, kind of, you know, making us feel connected and uh, act out of kindness in kind, kinder ways. So there's been a lot of research that, <clears throat> that has gone into this. And um, so empathy is... In earlier, I talked about, you know, to experience compassion, to have compassion for someone, it requires this ability to identify or connect with that other person. This is what empathy does. Empathy has two aspects. One is a perception or awareness, which is the understanding of the situation. So it's more cognitive. The other one is um, emotion, which is some kind of sense of concern, so which it would be feeling for, or resonating the experience of this other person, so which is feeling with. So it can be both either feeling with or feeling for, and in some cases, both. So basically, empathy allows us to understand the situation as well as be emotionally moved by that situation. And that then opens up the possibility of compassion arising and empathy is very basic part of our nature you know in situations sometimes we may choose to switch it off for example like you know in in the case of rivalry in the case of uh, someone that we don't like then even though that person may be suffering we choose to switch off the empathetic part and then actually relish in what the person is doing so this is schadenfreude you know kind of you know uh, taking re- rejoicing in someone else's Misfortune. So this is when this happens. We have chosen to switch off our empathetic response and then turn on something else. Um, so, I, but the the difference between empathy and compassion is that empathy is really more of an emotional nature, uh, whereas compassion has a more active component in it. So, to use brain language. When compassion arises, one would expect even the motor regions of the brain, which, you know, kind of regulates our action, would be more active and because you want to do something about the situation. Whereas when you are in empathetic zone, and more the kind of the, um, the, the empathy areas would be activated and, you know, they, you'll be more in the emotional state. So one could also say that when you're in empathy, focus is more the suffering and the problem. When you're in compassion, then the focus is now more on what can be done. So it's a more empowered state. Mm-hmm. So, this is one of the reasons why I make the suggestion that maybe here there is some potential for some kind of training that could be offered to healthcare providers, particularly those who are at the front line of acute pain management, uh, so that they can, you know, because many of them, um, you know, uh, adopt self-protection mechanism that involves suppression and switching off, and detachment, mm. that in the long run is not very healthy. So if they can remain open to the suffering, be empathetic, but then move swiftly onto the compassion, then that way, because compassion is a much more empowered state, because you want to do something about the situation. Mm. Yeah. Okay,
2: You. this is, to some extent, discussing awareness. Yes. Obviously, And you use the expression, uh, it works for me, of meta-awareness. Yes. And also, I think you talk about meta-cognitive work, um, yes, yes. which means, I guess, thinking about thinking, but meta-awareness is is inquiring deeply into into the actual dynamic of awareness and how we can change it and how we can become aware of awareness, if you yes. will. Yes,
1: sure. Would you break that down a little? Yes. Um, I mean, I actually... Um, you know, understand when I look at how meditation works, so meditation in a very generic sense, uh, I try to look at, um, you know, three different aspects to this. One is simply quieting the mind because, you know, our everyday mind is very restless, agitated, disturbed, distracted. So the first step, stage in the meditation practice is to simply quieten. It's really slowing it down. Then the other step is to then applying it by learning to focus, choose a specific object and intentionally focus on it. And then the third aspect is this awareness. And I call it meta-awareness because it allows us to take a kind of observer standpoint. And this is what is makes modern mindfulness so, you know, kind of, um, Powerful for a lot of people who are meditating for the first time you know one of the skills you know modern mindfulness practice gives the first time meditators is the ability to observe what's happening in their own thoughts, emotions and body and that is no that doesn't come naturally. you have to somehow learn that skill to be able to observe. so this is what I mean by meta it's a sort of a second order Awareness, which is looking at awareness and other experiences. And so I think, and it it does involve a degree of detachment, um, you know, or or distancing. So one of the reasons why mindfulness is proven to be quite effective in helping prevention of relapse of depression is because depressive tendencies are often exacerbated by, you know, ruminations. And most of the ruminations are about what is going wrong, you know, the, the kind of the unhappy part of our life. And people get carried away by the, the kind of the narrative and, and the content of the thought, and then they identify with them. Whereas the the mindfulness practice allows them to develop a skill so that they can catch themselves, so that they don't get swept away by this self-perpetuating kind of narrative power, so that they can... Step out and then observe it and recognize the contents of the thoughts as just that thoughts and constructs. Mm-hmm. And and so this this is what I mean by meta awareness. It's sort of there's a kind of a stepping out and observing mm-hmm. the processes. Mm-hmm. And which is a key part of, you know, <clears throat> all the kind of meditation practices, you know, especially in the Buddhist tradition. Mm-hmm.
0: There's one part of this book that uh, i have to say it's a story and uh i loved it so much Jinpa. oh you must uh relate it here and it's when you were called uh, i think you were still a monk at the time and you were called uh to go to Kathmandu to yes, meet yes. your grandmother who, who yes. you <laughs> never met before please <laughs> tell that story and yes and this was who in she
1: yeah, this was in 1982, around that time. And, um, you know, uh, it's my mother's mother. And uh, I've never really met um, any of my, other than my uncle, who was in India, uh, my mother's family. <clears throat> so when the word came to us, my uncle was at that time living in the same settlement where I was, uh, where the monastery was. And uh, he came to see me and he said that, uh, you know, his mother has arrived at Kathmandu and he's going to go and see her and her family. And they have asked for my mother to come, and they did not know my mother had passed away quite a while ago. Um, so he, my uncle said, you know, as the eldest of, you know, um, my mother's children, you know, maybe I should go. Um, I was in the middle of a very important study uh, program, uh, actually studying Nagarjuna's philosophy. Mm. And, um, you know, I basically said, no. I said, look, it's a long way to go and I'll be taking a couple of weeks off. I'm in the middle of a study and I really don't want to go. So I sent some money with my uncle. "Um, Please, you know, give the money as gifts. And um, a few days later, I got a telegram from my teacher who was at that time teaching, giving some teachings in Nepal. You know, he was very stern. basically said, come right now if you don't come and see your grandmama, you will regret your, regret your entire life mm-hmm. <laughs> so of course you know looking back you need wise people to tell us uh, mm. uh, important things like that so i went there and um and it was it was one of the most important experiences of my you know young adult life uh, it was powerful because you know there were Two of my aunts were there. One, my, one of my uncle was, you know, in the, in the group, and my uncle from India, and then my grandmother. And as I walked into the room, you know, there was spontaneous wailing and screaming and crying. Mm. Ah. <laughs> it was just so powerful. And then once everything calmed down, there was this total silence for a couple of minutes, you know. And, um, and which felt really kind of a very peaceful, like kind of, you know, because from this intense emotion of wailing and screaming to this peaceful quiet. Um, and then um, I spent a few days, uh, actually about a week uh, with my grandmother, and to be able to observe her the naturalness with which she interacted with her children, with me, and going, you know, going around the Swayambunath temple, the stupa, and the chantings that she does in the morning and there's just the basic way of being. There was a kind of a relaxedness. There was a sense of ease. There was a total sense of abandon, you know, as if she was there fully present, you know, wherever mm. she went. And as if she had no baggage, you know, kind of, mm. you know, ego-related baggage. And initially it was a little troubling because you know she, she was not even educated she was she was not even literate mm-hmm. and and here i was you know who was a sophisticated monk you know priding in the knowledge and mastery of the classical buddhist philosophy and so on but when it came to actual you know embodiment of compassion and genuine peace we were miles apart <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> and um And, you know, I also noticed in her eyes that she actually felt sorry for me. (laughs) 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 Uh, So, uh. you know, when finally we said goodbye, she, you know, held my hand and, you know, we did the head touching the Tibetan tradition. looked into my eyes and she said, you know, be happy, you know, be be at peace, be happy, be kind it was as simple as that it's just it's as simple as that you know mm.
0: all things should be as simple as that yes, we should yeah. all be with each yeah. other
1: and i really i mean i feel grateful to my teacher for you know mm. sending that stern telegram which really brought me <laughs> up there oh, <laughs>
0: really yeah um and, and there's one thing dave that uh, i think you'd agree the the essence here of the book uh obviously, is around compassion and around applying that in your daily life. And there's so much practicality in this book, so many exercises to cultivate this, which is highly important for all of us. But at the core, to me, is the word courage. Yes. And I'll just tell you a short little little story because I want you to talk about courage, which I think is super, super important. Um, We were uh, in India with uh, when Ramdas went back many of us went back with him that second time he went back to India i don't know if you know his story at all but uh, to be with his guru neem karoli baba through whom we met many uh, tibetan uh, uh, rinpoches many masters yes. which is a whole other story that we'll so, tell you one day uh but one so our tradition certainly is bhakti yoga right and uh, uh a, a good friend of ours was sitting with him in a room, and there was another uh, elderly Indian devotee who had been with him for many years. And, uh, and suddenly, Nimkaroli Baba, we called him Maharaji, said, courage is everything. And this Indian guy said, well, actually, uh, the guru's grace, is, it's all about the guru's grace. It's kripa. And Maharaji turned to him, straightened the eyes, and went, Courage is everything. And this story has been told by uh, this guy, Krishna Das is his name, and uh, in a way that he said, just that alone has allowed me to be able to have a foundation in my life to be able to transform many, many disturbing emotions, thoughts, and so on, and situations. And would you talk about courage? Beautiful. Because-
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Um... The thing is, often in our life, um, we get stuck and we get um, we get stumbled because we tend to allow our anxiety and fear uh, to take over. Um, so, and we fail to trust our own instinct, our own intuition. Um, so in these kind of situations, this ability to trust yourself, it really is the courage. And and you need that because you, and of course, in order to have this, you do need to have some basic cultivations because, you know, um, you need to have the the right set of values. uh, You need to have right set of ideals that inspire you. you need to have a sense of uh, belonging to a community. Um, So once you have these, as a kind of a background, then the actual living when it comes to the actual living, then we need courage, because without courage, we get really sidetracked and often we um, come up with we're very, you know the mind is very very creative and and it will come up with all sorts of excuses you yeah. know that it 's not the right time um, maybe i 'm not ready yet. Um, Maybe uh, if this happens, what am I going to do? So it's fear, uh, risk, kind of anxiety, um, kind of procrastination. Uh, and also, all of these really hinder us. And here, I think this open-hearted courage, which allows us to trust our instinct and then just be, you know, and also let go. Because one of the key um, practices of any great spiritual tradition is the ability to let go, particularly the let go of your strong gripping at self. Because sometimes, I mean, the the interesting thing about self-centeredness is that the impulse behind self-centeredness is a fear. Mm -hmm. Because we are so terrified that if we somehow do not control and fix it, that, Terrible things are going to happen. Everything's going to, you know, fall apart. And you need a courage to be able to just trust the process and also let go. And so, in all of these, and even compassion, you know, you need you need a courage because to act out of compassion, you extend the hand to the other person. There is no guarantee that the other person is going to accept the extended hand. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also no guarantee that the other person is going to react negatively. But you need a courage to be able to extend that hand first yourself. And so I think even to act out of compassion, you need courage, because you are basically giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. Um, and you are allowing and you're saying that you're going to respond to any given situation out of trust, out of trust in, in basic humanity. So for that, you do need a courage, but also compassion brings courage because one of the things that causes us so much fear is the excessive focus on self and its concerns. And when you are, when you are caught by excessive self-concern, everything that you do seems to have, uh, it feels as if there's too much at stake. So we act as if, you know, if this doesn't work for me, terrible things are going to happen. And all of this kind of additional level of stress is really brought on by this excessive self-focus where we, you know, kind of, you know, uh, invest much more than what is actually at stake. Now, when you are compassionate, you know, you are, you are thinking more about other people. In that space, you know, you have a much more resilient mind. And, you know, so the Tibetan mind training teachers uh, often say that the people who are excessively self-focused are like those who are carrying a very large target to be shot at and <laughs> mm-hmm. walking around with it so that you get easily hurt. Whereas when you are more courageous, when you are more compassionate, you know, because there is less focus on self, you also are more resilient. You know, you can you, you have a much more um, um, capacity to understand situation and endure it. So I think in all of these, courage really is the key. Mm.
0: Well said, beautiful Tim wow. yeah. Yeah. Um Well, we're kind of at, the, at near the close here of the podcast, and but we we have to mention, of course, that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's birthday. coming very soon july 6th is is that correct yes yes and uh uh, please just give us one anecdote of your life with his holiness of who who this incredible being is um it's a birthday gift Um, for us actually
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, well maybe uh, um, a funny story um when i first began interpreting for him in 85 and um The first trip with him was in 86 within India. And um, so His Holiness visited many different cities, um, including some of the southern Indian ones. And uh, I traveled with him. So initially, when I was interpreting for him, my English wasn't that fluent. So, and whenever, and because I had prepared well, whenever he stayed very close to the subject, which was the formal Buddhist teachings, I was quite good. But the moment he weirded into telling stories uh, in that kind of in ordinary kind of language, then my vocabulary or way of putting things was getting challenged. So I was getting more and more nervous. When you get nervous, you become self-conscious. Then things started to go wrong. So I remember he gave, he was giving a talk uh, in one of the Indian cities. I think it was probably Hyderabad. And, uh, and then he, when he was presenting this, making the presentation, I was doing very fine. And then when he started telling a story, and the story had something to do with fox. And I just couldn't remember the word fox. <laughs> <laughs> and I got stuck, and I was trying to say, mm, and his Holiness pointed his finger at me and said, fox. <laughs> and then the whole auditorium <laughs> roared in laughter. <laughs> <laughs> So that was one of the very, very early days when I began serving him. <laughs> but he's an amazing, you know, I mean, even from ordinary kind of human standard, he's an amazing individual. It's just he's, and as Buddhist, you know, I feel so happy that he really is the representative of Buddhism for the world. You know, it's, it's just amazing, um, you know, wonderful, you know, highly realized, but deeply humbled. Mm. And very human, down to earth mm. and good sense of humor, and who also constantly remind us that human life is not just about suffering and problem, but it's also about joy, mm. and spiritual practice is not about working always with you know gritted teeth, but there's also a joy <laughs> so, mm. because he's he's himself a very happy man, and I think that is mm. that's beautiful because we do need to be reminded that you know, sometimes we forget in the process of living that we forget to live with joy.
2: Yes, that's, that's a, a fabulous word to end with. And I, I, I just, m- myself and Raga, I'm sure, too, we're just, a, we're really thrilled that you wanted to do this with us and, and honored. And we wish you the greatest luck in this, any tours you're doing in the United States or anywhere.
1: Thank you very much. Thank, uh, thank you. Thank you. And
2: don't and everybody out there, it's a fearless heart.
0: How the courage to be compassionate can transform our lives. Tupten Jinpa, and you will see it on the site. Uh, we're going to have you on two sites: the podcast site, which is MindPod Network, and then Ramdas dot org, where uh, we're going to have you. Uh, on the featured teacher part of that site, so it's a combo kind of thing that we do. so uh, yeah, so because we feel strongly that this this has to uh, help so many people get a handle on being able to cultivate something that is good for themselves and for. Uh, people around them. So, uh, thank you, thank you for this book. And you're going to be in Los Angeles, right? F- yes, obviously. I'll
1: be with this oldness, you know, on this forthcoming visit. Yeah, uh-huh. so I'll be part of the celebration. Oh. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, no, it's going to be great. I'm trying to get there as well, so I'm going to wave to you too. Thank you. <laughs> all, all the best, and uh, thank you, David. Thank you, Jinpa, and uh, tune in next week to MindPod next Thank next.
1: you very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.